if you take honest stock of the world that you're in right now, the culture we see all around us, the moral, spiritual, ethical, precipitous decline that's inarguable, I think it's a fair question for us to ask. And hopefully you have people around you, people that you work with, people that you're related to, people that you live nearby that are asking or at least wondering the same thing. Is there any hope? Is there any hope? I was reading a sermon this week by J.C. Ryle. I don't know the exact day of the sermon. I couldn't find that. But I know his lifespan was between 1816 and 1900, if that gives you some idea of the context. And the title of the sermon was, The Morning Without Clouds. Listen to a little bit of what he said. Again, considering the date, 150 years ago. Who can look around them and consider the state of the world in which we live and not be obliged to confess that clouds and darkness are now on every side? The whole creation groans and travails in pain. Romans 8, 22. Look where we will see confusion, quarrels, wars between nations, helplessness of statesmen, discontent and grumbling of the lower classes, excessive luxury among the rich, extreme poverty among the poor, intemperance, impurity, dishonesty, swindling, lying, cheating, covetousness, heathenism, superstition, formality among Christians, decay of vital religion. These are the things which we see continually over the whole globe, in Europe, Asia, Africa, and America. These are the things which defile the face of creation and prove that the devil is the prince of this world and that the kingdom of God has not yet come. These are clouds, indeed, which often hide the sun from our eyes. Who can look around them in his own neighborhood and fail to see within a mile of his own house that the consequences of sin lie heavily on earth and that sorrow and trouble abound? Will nothing in this state of things? Is, cre is creation to go on groaning and travailing forever after this fashion? Thanks be to God. The second advent of Christ supplies an answer to these questions. The Lord Jesus Christ has not yet finished his work on behalf of men. There is a good time coming when this state of things shall be completely changed. There is a kingdom coming in which holiness shall be the rule and sin shall have no place at all. Let's give God thanks for that. Father, forgive us for being weak when we should be strong. For being ignorant when we should be knowledgeable. For being hesitant when we should be bold. For being fearful when we should be courageous, for being doubting when we should be firm in our faith. Father, it is not by accident that we live and work and serve in the air in which we find ourselves. You have planted us here. We are your ambassadors. We represent you here. Your appeal is made through us that people might be reconciled to you. The people whom it seems are, are farther away than ever. Living in deeper, more palpable darkness than ever. Rejecting you, defying you more than ever. And Father, we find ourselves no longer in any sort of 
position of majority or even favor. Now in much opposition and difficulty. Father, I pray that today you would, you would challenge us to, to renew courage and conviction. You would challenge us to renew faith and faithfulness. To new action and speech. Father, you be glorified. Father, we thank you that there is a good time coming. A coming day when all that's unjust will be made right. All suffering will cease. When every tear is going to be wiped from our eyes. We thank you, Father, that there's a day when King Jesus will suddenly return to this earth. When the dead will be raised. When all men and women will be judged. When the heavens and earth will be removed. Be renewed, Father, and every trace of sin will be gone. We thank you for that. We thank you for this, our living hope. Speak to us now, we pray through your word and by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Dan was reading those texts, I wanted you to see and sense the juxtaposition of the coming day of God for those who don't know Christ and the horror in it, and to feel the weight of that without apology, to see what the scriptures say about the coming day of the Lord, that this is a day not to be celebrated, but to be feared deeply for those who don't know Christ, versus the coming of the Lord for those who do know Christ and how it is to be anticipated and how it is to be hoped for and how our joy is to be found in it. For those who don't know Christ, this is the most terrible day imaginable. Revelation 6, 15 through 17, John describes the day like this. He says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? But for those who are Christ's, for those who hold fast to the end, this is the most gloriously wonderful day imaginable. Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4. Listen to how John, that same John, depicts how God's covenant promises are going to be fulfilled. And we can count on this with certainty. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning anymore, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. This second coming of Christ, this gospel truth that we hold firmly to, that this King Jesus that we recognize in the foreshadowing of Palm Sunday, Jesus riding in to the shouts of Hosanna, is going to be fully recognized in the coming kingdom when he returns. I ask the question, is there any hope? Well, what is biblical hope? I'm not hope in general. The term hope means different things in different contexts. You know, for most people, if you say hope, that means something they wish for. There's no certainty to it. There's a desire behind it, but there are no guarantees with it. You know, I, I hope, that's the essence of it. But biblical hope is not the same term. Biblical hope is this. Biblical hope is the certainty that what we desire 
most with our hearts, what we desire most as Christians, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and what we expect, that he will keep his promises. Biblical hope is the certainty that what we desire and expect will necessarily happen based on God himself. Biblical hope, the certainty that what we desire and expect will happen. It's not a wish. It's not just a desire. It's a confident certainty. Now, what's the basis for any hope? Why can anyone have that hope? If you and I have this hope, and we sang about it today, and we've heard scriptures about it today, we hold this hope that this world that we live in, increasingly dark and increasingly broken, without argument, I think, what is the remedy? What is the hope in any of this? The hope is only in the return of Christ. What basis is there then for any sort of hope, for any person anywhere? There are only two words. Two words that give any of us any hope, anytime, anywhere. Grace and gospel. Grace and gospel. That God who is good and merciful and kind and does not treat us as our sins deserve, but treats us according to his loving kindness. God who desires that all men everywhere should be saved and that none should face everlasting destruction. This God in his grace and mercy tarries. He tarries. He has not yet returned. He has not yet enacted full judgment. There's still this window. There's still this precious window of opportunity afforded to your friends, your neighbors, your family, this world, this dark place that we live, afforded to them because of God's grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope, Good hope, through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good word, work and word. It's the hope that only grace gives that God, who he has ev- though he has every right to, has not yet destroyed us. Not yet enacted a final judgment, but is still affording us grace. And he shows us that grace through gospel. The only hope that we have is that God is withholding judgment because of his grace and God is offering hope because of the gospel. What is the gospel? What is this good news that gives us any hope, anyone any hope in this world? That the one and only God who made us for his own pleasure and purpose, he made us in his own image that we might know him and relate to him. This God shows us grace because we sinned against him. We rebelled against him. We rejected his authority over us. We rejected his good design and creation. We rejected his purposes in the world for us. But in his great love, God sent his son as a redeemer, a coming king to rescue his people from our great enemies, sin and death. And sending his son into this world to deliver us from all the effects of our sin. He establishes this kingdom. He says the kingdom is here. Repent, believe the gospel, Jesus says. Jesus comes as the priest the great priest, the perfect priest who intercedes for the people before the Father. He comes as the perfect sacrifice who takes a gift, who takes the sacrifice, the penalty paid for our sins before the Father. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross sacrificially. He fulfills the law of God perfectly. He takes on the punishment of sin for all those who believe in him. And then ultimately, what we will celebrate in the pinnacle of our Christian year, Resurrection Sunday, he is raised from the dead. God receives that sacrifice. God accepts the penalty paid. 
Jesus demonstrates that he is God. He affords us, enables us to have new life from death. And the gospel now then calls us to repent of our sins. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. And if we do, if we repent and trust in him, he'll grant us new life. He'll grant us forgiveness. We'll be born again into a new eternal life, everlasting life, as we await this final aspect of the gospel, his soon return. One day Jesus, possibly soon, is going to return as king to this earth. The Bible says that he's going to raise his own who are in the grave. He's going to gather up the living. He's going to judge them. He's going to establish an everlasting kingdom, a new heavens and new earth, where we can know him, worship him, and enjoy him forever. That's the gospel. The only thing that gives hope in this world that we're in is God's grace and the gospel that gives that grace meaning to us. Would you open your Bible to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, he said. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. There's so much in that text. So much I want you to see and feel and think and do from this text. This text talks about two appearances, two epiphanies, two comings of Christ. One, he says, has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. God's grace appeared not in concept, not in idea, not in message or proclamation, but in person. God's grace appeared in Christ. God demonstrated his grace in the coming of Christ for us. This first appearance was an epiphany of grace. This is when grace really appears. We know that God is willing to show mercy. God is willing to forgive. God is offering salvation to everyone who believes. When the passage says he's bringing salvation for all people, it's all kinds of people everywhere. Not respective of their backgrounds, nationalities, ethnicities, religious upbringings. All types of people everywhere can receive this grace. His grace has appeared in the coming of Christ Jesus, and this grace is offered to the entire world. That's the epiphany of grace. But this grace does more than give us forgiveness. There's much more to the gospel of Christ than come and be forgiven. Stay as you are, but be forgiven of who you are and what you've done makes no sense. It's a message of restoration, redemption. The work of God that changes from the inside out, not just changes our sentence, or even changes the condition that we're in, but changes the condition of us. It's His grace in us. What does God's grace through Christ Jesus do for us? Listen to some of these things from the passage. One, it, it rescues us. God's grace rescues us from sin's dominion and destruction. When you're giving the gospel, you're giving good news that you do not have to be a victim of your own sins, your own sinful desires. The effects of those sins. The Bible teaches that sin is a slave master. No one controls it. 
Our great fallacy when it comes to sin is that we control it, that we can monitor it, that we can handle it, that we, that we can stop it apart from Christ, and we cannot. We are its slaves, and it is slave master built on our absolute and final destruction. That's why the gospel requires us to call out sin. That's why the gospel can't ignore human sin. That's why the first words of the gospel that Jesus gave were repent and believe the good news. You can't ignore sin in humanity and offer hope for those sins simultaneously. You can't say that these things are not sin and offer forgiveness for those sins simultaneously. That's not the gospel. That's a damning bad news anti-gospel. He came to rescue us from sin and its destruction over us. So we call out sin and we say, this is sin that you must repent of so that you can be free of it. And not just free of its obvious impact on your life right now, but its eternal impact, its judging impact. God's grace through Jesus Christ also releases us from the inferior, unsatisfying love of this world. He says he's bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. There are millions, no, no, billions of people they're only living for what this world can offer them. And it's ultimately, and it's perpetually, perpetually and ultimately unsatisfying. We think we have it, and then we find that's not enough, so we go for something else or something more. Or we think if we just had a little bit more of what we already have, then we'd be satisfied. And this world is not meant to be our satisfaction. And part of the good news of Christ is he releases us from this, that you don't live for these temporary things these temporal things, these short-term things, these things that will never meet the needs, that will never satisfy you, will never go down to the center of your heart and fill that gap, that hole that exists there. We're renouncing these worldly passions, and God replaces that with a passion for something bigger, something better, something everlasting, something perfectly good, something where God, where God is. God's grace through Christ Jesus also reorients our source of identity, and our source of authority from ourselves to the scriptures. See, he says this gospel, this grace teaches us, teaches us to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. The great failure of so many today is this, their, their ultimate authority is themselves. What they think, what they want, what they desire, their sense of identity it's whatever culture will give them. You know, we're seeing a, a catastrophe now of, of identity in our country today. We've seen six people murdered this past week by someone whose identity is either established by mental illness, cultural manipulation, or demonic influence, or all the above. And then four days later, our government establishes that sort of identity, that sort of broken thinking, that sort of demonic thinking and behavior as normal to be celebrated with a holiday. Our enemy is ourselves, and our only true identity can be found in Christ. Who does God say that I am? How did God make me? How did God design me? For what purpose did God make me? And my ultimate authority for my own well-being, for my own health, and for the good of all those around me is not what I think is right. The worst periods in human history are when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That marked the days of Noah, and it, marked the day, it marks the days of the second coming of Christ. 
and it marks the days that we live in today. But if we want to live well and live right, then our identity is established by Him, and our authority is found in Him, and there our lives flourish, and it reorients all of that. That's what this grace does. It tells me this is who God says that I am. I think of those great passages like in Ephesians that describe the condition of people before they met Christ. And it lists all these sorts of sins that mark what's normal and acceptable and celebrated in our culture today. And then it says, and such were some of you, but God. And we've removed the but God equation from our world today. God reorients us to himself and to who he says that we are and to how he says we're to live. And that's why this grace ultimately reshapes our broken lives into the image of Christ. The hope that we hold out to anybody, anywhere, is whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you think of yourselves, whatever, however you identify yourself, whatever your beliefs and behaviors are, the good news of Christ is he can take those, reorient you to himself, who he says that you are, how he says you ought to live, and by the power of his spirit in you, he can shape you into the image of Christ. Such were some of you, but you're not anymore because of Christ. Who can't be changed? Whose life can't be redirected, reoriented? Who can't be remade? Who can't be made new? No one is outside the power of Christ who submits and surrender to him. And God's grace through Christ readies us for endurance in this world. Not just endurance in this world, but enjoyment in the world to come. He says, this grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting not passively but actively, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the first appearing was an appearance of grace, training us to live in a way that honors Christ, reshaping us in the image of Christ, giving us the identity that Christ gives to us and the purpose He gives to us. This is God's grace in us. Meanwhile, we're still here, just as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that the Father would leave us in the world, not take us out of this world. But now we are still here actively waiting. So we wait with endurance and patience for what is to come. Hebrews 9, 26 and following says this, He, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. This was the first appearing, the appearance of grace. Christ appeared. He comes into the city of Jerusalem resolutely knowing that he will be misunderstood. Knowing that they'll desire something that he's not. Knowing that they'll be short-sighted and selfish. Knowing that they'll want him to fix their current problems, give them bread, overthrow their Roman dictators, change their conditions. But he's coming to change their eternity knowing he'll be refused and rejected. Knowing he'll be despised and abused. Knowing he'll be crucified and condemned for their sake. He does these things intentionally, willfully. He's appeared once for all at the end of age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He sacrificed himself. And just as is appointed for man once to die, after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the second appearance. The second appearance of Christ is not an appearance of grace. He's not coming offering redemption and salvation. This is an appearance or an epiphany of glory. This is Christ fully revealed. 
This is Christ not veiled in weak humanity. This is Christ not born in a stable. This is Christ not growing up in a poor carpenter's family. This is Christ not subject to the abuses and whims of humanity. This is Christ not subject to religious courts or human courts. This is Christ not bending his back to take the blows of a Roman guard or the abuses of a Jewish king or the spit and mockery of an unbelieving people. This is Christ coming in glory. What he inaugurated or began in his first coming. We have seen him. He appeared to us. He's going to consummate in a second. What's begun there will be completed when he returns. And all the pieces will fit together. And all the world will see him. And everyone will know who he is. No longer veiled. 1 John 3, 2 reminds us that we will see him. And here's a beautiful, here's a beautiful statement. We will see him as he is. Circle that. We'll see him as he is. Right now, if you ask 100 people, church going and non-church going, who is Jesus to you? You might get 50 different kinds of answers. The Jesus of our own construction, the Jesus of our own imagination, the Jesus of our own desires or whims. If you listen to an hour, if you could possibly subject yourself to that of contemporary Christian television, you're going to hear all sorts of views of Jesus that don't align with the revelation of himself in Scripture. But here's the thing, when Jesus returns in his second coming there'll be no questions we will see him as he is he'll not be subject to our interpretations well this, this is jesus to me my jesus would never i don't believe in a jesus who or i don't think that jesus would we'll see jesus as he is he will return bodily visibly and suddenly the bible teaches and when he does what will he do the dead in christ will be raised the living will be transformed, translated, literally, to meet him in the air. He's going to come to judge the world. He's going to come to make all things new. This is the hope of our second coming. This is our sure and steadfast hope. I was listening to that song that we were singing, Is He Worthy? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Because today you and I can gather and we can say these things and we can sing these things. We can agree on these things with little to no threat or pressure. But I predict there will come a day where you or your children will gather only under the threat of genuine persecution to say and declare these things. Has the gospel of his grace taught you who you are? Has it taught you who you live for and under? Has it taught you how to live? And has it readied you to endure? Because you're the enemy now. Been watching the news and our government hasn't even used the word Christian this week. We've heard transgender quite a bit, transgender community, transgender rights. We've been told that transgenders make up the soul of our nation. We've heard nothing of our Christian heritage, our Christian roots, Christian beliefs, Christian persecution. We're of nothing of that. You're in the crosshairs. Issues aren't just about guns today. They're about that one group that our media hates and our prevailing government hates. And it's you. It's me. And it's not just those who give lip service to being Christian. It's those who say we believe our identity is formed by Christ. So we don't get to choose that. 
We believe our behavior is dictated by Christ, so we submit to that. We believe our authority is Christ, so we'll live under that. We believe our king is Christ, so we'll submit and be ruled only by Christ. And we believe that Christ is going to come back, and he's going to restore what's broken here. And that makes you the enemy. Are you ready? Our hope is in this second appearance, the epiphany of glory, that our king is coming and he will reign forever. That's the blessed hope we have in Christ. Our king is coming and will reign forever. This king who lived, died, and was raised, who visibly ascended, will return. That's the gospel. Don't shortcut the gospel. When you're telling the truth about Christ, don't shortcut the gospel. Don't truncate the gospel. Don't cut it off so it has no legs, so it has no arms and reach. This is the gospel. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. He was raised bodily, not just spiritually. He ascended. He appeared physically. He ascended visibly, and he's going to return in glory. This is the whole gospel. That's the news. That's what we proclaim. It's not a prayer we say for people to pray. It's not an invitation that we give. It's a message that we declare. As he says in verse 15, declare these things. Sometimes you're exhorting. Sometimes you're saying these things. You're saying them to Christians to say, man, hang in there. Don't quit on Christ. Don't abandon the faith. Don't allow yourself to be canceled. You're going to be under a great deal of pressure if you stand up and be identified as Christ. And all that pressure is going to be wielded against you. You're going to be made out to be a fool by the entertainment media. You're going to be made out to be the, the enemy by our, our news media. You're, you're not going to be protected by a government anymore who sees you as an opponent towards the path that we're headed down. Don't quit on Christ. He's worth it. He is the one king. I was watching a message this week, some different clips that circulated. I have to admit I didn't watch the whole message. not sure I have the stomach for it. But I was watching one of America's most influential pastors talk about why he's a Christian. And the two points he gave is this, it makes, makes my life better, it makes me better at life. And I thought, that, that's your gospel, it makes your life better, it makes you better at life. I, I can't imagine being in a, in a village in India, surrounded by adamant and angry Hindus who hate the Bible, will not allow it to be circulated, hate Christianity and Christians, and are doing all they can to persecute them, and who have passed laws in their state making it illegal for anyone to even convert, and saying, listen, if you'll just trust Christ, I promise your life's going to get a lot better. He's going to help you. You're going to be better at life. You're going to be better at just dealing with all these relationships and things, and your children. I'm not saying he doesn't help you deal with your life. I'm saying you need to be willing to trust Christ because he is the king. He is the once and coming king. He's the reigning king. What are you going to do with your worldview when Jesus shows up? What are you going to do with your atheism when King Jesus shows up? What are you going to do with your rejection of morality and sex and gender when Jesus shows up? Well, what are you going to do when you've said nothing but oppositional things, defiant things, rebellious things, and you find the real king is exactly who the Bible says he is, and he shows up? We trust in Jesus because he's true, because he's real, and one day he will appear. This is his glory, and we're going to see it. And this is the whole gospel. Not just that Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, though both those things are true. Jesus is a preexistent King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules and reigns. 
And one day he's going to establish that rule and reign over everyone and everything in a way that is unmistakable, undeniable, and absolute. He's coming again. That's horrific news for those who rebel against him. That is amazingly good news for those who trust in him, for those who hold firm to the end. So knowing that the king is coming again, that this is central to the word of God, central to the gospel, as sure as he came once, he will return. Knowing that he's coming again, what should we do? What should we do? At the very least, foundational is this, we stay faithful to the king. Stay faithful to the king. The one person that we must give an account of our lives to, every action and every word and every thought is King Jesus. Be faithful to that king. Honor that king. Number two, we don't bow to this culture. It seems like there are increasingly more and more parallels between the culture that we live in and the culture that Daniel and the children of Israel dealt with under captivity to the Babylonians. Well, if you'll just bow, everything will be fine. If you'll concede, everything will be fine. If you'll, if you'll adopt the morals of this age and the gods of this age, everything will be fine. You, don't have to have, you won't have any problems. You won't have to worry. Just bow. We refuse to bow to this culture. We cannot. We cannot bow to a culture that hates God and hates God's creation, God's design. A culture that wars against truth, church, family, marriage, your very identity and self. We can't bow before that culture. And that's going to get harder and harder to do, harder and harder to resist. Ours is not the first Christian culture that must resist, but we must. Faithfulness to the king demands it. Meanwhile, we do the good that we can. We do the good that we can. We don't stop. We do the good that we can. We continue to exert the influence that, we, that we're afforded. We're still, as this passage says, zealous for good works. Because that's just who we are. It's not a strategy. It's not a way to make things better for us. It's not a substitute for telling the truth. I think sometimes in, in, in modern contemporary Christianity, we've given away, we've stopped telling the truth, we just start doing good works. And maybe we'll just do good works, people will appreciate us, and, and we won't be persecuted. Understand the hatred is not aimed primarily at you. Jesus says, they hated me. They hated me. As the world hated me, they will hate you. This is the way it will be. If you ever doubted the hatred of the world towards Christ, consider it this week. This week we call the Passion Week, the Holy Week. The hatred of Christ, perhaps most pronounced on the day that we call Good Friday, ironically. They hated me. They're going to hate you. That's where the hatred is. It's the hatred of the truth. You see, the church conceded these points years ago to its own demise. We won't talk about your life. We won't talk about your choices. Or we'll accept those things. Just give us peace. Leave us alone. Don't threaten us. Give us our space. We'll give you yours. But in a world and a culture that hates Christ, hates the commands of Christ, hates the image of Christ, hates the design of Christ, the purposes of Christ, the authority of Christ, there are no concessions there. 
So we resist, but we continue to do good. Not, again, not for strategy. We don't do good work so the world will like us better, tolerate us more. That they'll let us be and not persecute us. We do good because that's who we are. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. The God who designed our salvation, God who saved us by his grace, not by our works, saved us for a life of good. That's just who we are. And don't allow the pressure and persecution to stop you from doing and being good. But number four, we declare the truth of his coming. Again, listen to what he says in this passage. I said it already, but let me repeat it. Declare these things. The gospel is a proclamation to be declared. People have to decide how they're going to respond to it, how someone responds to it. We might call that the plan of salvation. Declare the truth, and someone says, well, then what do I do? That's when you give them the means by which they respond. But declare these things, which means sometimes we're exhorting. Today, I'd like to think that what I'm doing, I thought about this this morning, even as I was walking over here, in one sentence, what am I trying to accomplish today? I want to exhort you to be faithful to King Jesus no matter what, to stand firm to the end, to represent Christ well, and don't quit no matter the cost. Because he's coming again, King Jesus is coming again, let's be found faithful, that's an, ex that's an exhortation to you. But for some, there might be a rebuke in there. Your rebellion against the king will be undone. It will be revealed. It will be judged. The evil that we see in this world will not be left unchecked. He will judge. The living and the dead. And all sins will be punished. Those who are in Christ will have their sins punished on Christ. Praise God for that. That he is our propitiation. Since the world will have their sins punished on them. So we declare, we rebuke and exhort. We declare the truth of his coming. And we look forward to that great day. I guess what I wanted to do, what I wanted to give to you is what I've been seeking for myself is this biblical sort of hope that says all is not lost. Our God is still sovereign. The king is still king. He's still on his throne. One day all the world will see it and acknowledge it, but just because they don't see or acknowledge it does not invalidate it today. He's still the king, so the king is coming, and you and I need to look forward to that great day. It needs to be something that we're aware of consciously. It needs to be something we think about regularly. It needs to be part of our devotional life. It needs to be part of our worship life. It needs to be part of our prayer life that we're reflecting on, being reminded of, being encouraged by. Jesus is coming again. This has been the hope of every true believer since the time of Christ, that Jesus is coming again. I want to share with you a statement I just found so profound and, and detailed in its expression of, of hope in the coming of Christ. Shortly after the Reformation began to take hold in Europe, different confessions Doctrinal statements were being promulgated, and one of those that really took root that began to define what do we believe as opposed to this Roman Catholic faith that has co-opted true Christianity now for centuries. What do we believe the true word of God says about our faith in Christ? And one of those great confessions, a lengthy one, is the Belgic Confession of Faith from 1561. This is Article 37, and it is, not coincidentally, the last article of the Belgic Confession. And it is on the last judgment. I simply want to read it to you for your hope, for your encouragement. Finally, we believe according to the word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, 
and the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven, corporally and visibly, as he ascended, with great glory and majesty to declare himself judge of the quick and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. And then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trumpet of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living, they shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged according to what they shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men shall give an account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore, the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and the elect, because then their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and being immortal shall be tormented in that everlasting fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary, the faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with a most ardent desire to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Are you looking forward to that great day? That's our hope. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as one of the, one of the believers in the room, as one of those who belongs to you, as one of those who has you as my father, Jesus is my Savior and King. I thank you for this promise. My hope lies in you. My hope lies in what you have said you will do. My hope lies that I will see my King face to face. And that I will be with Him and enjoy Him forever. That, that's my hope. Father, I pray that you would encourage every believer in this room with that sure and certain hope. That what we desire most, what we fully expect, will absolutely come to pass because of you. You who are faithful will do it. Father, I pray that that motivation for the believers in this room will stir us to faithful living. How do we want to be living when you return? Are we faithful to you? Is our allegiance surely and completely to you and you alone? Or have we accepted the false gospel of this sin-sick, morally dying world? Have we bowed where you've said stand? Have we given ground that you say is sacred? Have we yielded where we should have been firm? Have we been silent where we should have spoken? Father, forgive us for that. Steady us and ready us for what is to come, knowing that you are worth it. 
No man has given up father or mother, sister or brother, land, possessions, whatever it may be, for your sake and the gospel who will not be repaid hundreds of times over in the kingdom that is to come. Lord, may we be faithful to you. And Father, give us a deep, grateful, hopeful, joyful expectation of the return of Christ. Father, if there's somebody listening, someone in this room or someone who may hear this message who's not in Christ, who's not a believer, has denied or doubted, never responded to the gospel message, never confessed sin, never turned from a, never, never turned to you, Father, to be the master of their life, never given their life to you, never trusted you with their life. Father, I pray that they would take these words that for us are such joyful hope and take them as stern warning. That when you come, it's not grace that you bring, it's just glory. Glory that rewards those who are yours, glory that condemns those who are not. Glory that rightfully separates and judges. Glory that justly deals with sin. Glory that establishes a kingdom of righteousness all under your good rule and reign. Father, I pray they would yield now. I would say, God, forgive me. Forgive me my sins which are rebellion against you. Forgive me, God, for denying you in your rightful place in my life. You are God. Save me by the work of Jesus who took my place, who died for my sins, who was raised to give me new life. Father, give me new life. Make me into the person you say that I am. Give me the new life you want me to live. Make me part of your everlasting family and your people, the church. And Lord, give me that promise, that hope of being raised one day to be with you forever, to enjoy you forever. Father, give me that today. I pray that some will call out to you for that salvation. They would repent and they would believe this good news. They'd follow you. They'd follow you. Father, for all of us in this room who are your followers and those who are becoming your followers today, Keep us faithful, and may we labor to be faithful, and may we encourage one another, exhort each other to be faithful, all the way to the end. May we count the cost so we don't turn back, and may we consider you worthy. May we consider you worthy. You're worthy. You're worthy of my obedience. You're worthy of my allegiance. You're worthy worthy of my faithfulness. Father, find us worthy. Pray this in Jesus' name.